Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 46. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and give you praise. For this day, Lord, thank you for calling us out of our beds and into the gathered worship of your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we have experienced so far this morning. Lord, we thank you, Father, for our time of song and confession. Lord, our time of liturgy and hearing your word read. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship you, Lord, through prayer and through hearing your word proclaimed and through Eucharist, Lord, we pray, God, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I was studying uh, this sermon text for this week, our sermon text for this week, I was, I was reminded of how there has been a constant theme of identity that has been woven throughout our lectionary for this year. We are in year A, which means that the lectionary follows a three-year cycle, A, B, and C, right? So we're in year A, which primarily means that the gospel is Matthew, right? And hence why we're looking at Matthew during this ordinary season. But... This year, uh, all of the readings together really kind of point us toward this theme of identity. We've talked about this quite a bit, starting all the way back in Advent uh, when the year started last year. Uh, But as we've made our way through this particular lectionary year, this identity theme has regularly forced us to consider two questions. The first one is, who is Jesus? Who is he? And the second one is, who are we in relation to Jesus? But what's happening in our text for today is is more profound than Jesus simply quoting the law or the Psalms to the Pharisees. What he's giving them, again, is proof of his identity. He's giving them, again, proof of his divinity. And so our text for this morning circles around these two sections that are two questions, both of which are related to the theme of identity that started all the way back in Matthew chapter 8, after Jesus had calmed the storm. That moment happens, and the disciples react by asking themselves, asking together, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They start to wrestle with his identity. This theme then continues all the way up into Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, 
which for us this year was actually the halfway point through ordinary season, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. If you remember that section, Jesus asked them, well, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And, well, some say you are John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say that you are a prophet like Jeremiah. Well, who do you say that I am? Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? They've settled on his identity at this point. The parables that we have looked at over the last few weeks together also likewise relate to identity, particularly our identity in the kingdom of God. Last week, when Chris was preaching on this very familiar text about paying taxes to Caesar, it relates to the identity of Christ as the true icon of God. And so this theme of identity reaches its highest point in the question asked by the Sanhedrin to Jesus after he had overturned the money changers in the temple, after he had disrupted their regular ebb and flow of religious life, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? They're wrestling with his identity. They need to know who he is. Matthew is one of the most, well, excuse me, not one of the most, Matthew is the most Jewish of all of the four Gospels that we have in our scriptures. And being the most Jewish of the Gospels, Matthew's concern, not that the other three are not, but Matthew's concern is primarily about fulfillment of Old Testament types and patterns. And about the fulfillment and about the fulfillment of the complete testimony of the entire Old Testament scriptures. And we see examples of this in our text for today. So notice, just from this simple reading that we just did, if you were just to glance over the text in your bulletin again, we can see the entire witness of the Old Testament being referred to by Christ. In verses 37 to 40, the first half of this text, before he asked the Pharisees a question himself, Jesus points us to the law and to the prophets. Then, in the second half of the text, he points us to the section of the scripture known as the writings. I'll dive into this a little bit more later. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus tells the disciples after his resurrection, this is the second time he uses this phrase in that chapter, he says, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, or the writings, must be fulfilled. The point here is that there is a trifold authority of the Old Testament that is upheld in these verses alone today. In this one passage from Matthew, we see this. Jesus fulfilling Old Testament patterns and types which point us directly to his identity and his authority to do the works that he has been doing and to say the things that he has been saying. So using Matthew's framework then of law and prophets and then the writings, let's just look at this text. Let's make our way through it and continue to consider the identity of Christ, but also our identity as it relates to him. So first, again, we see a reference to the law and the prophets in this very familiar exchange in verses 34 to 40. So again, I just want to read that section. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, said, asked him a question to test him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Our Eastern Orthodox friends are really helpful here. They state that the Pharisees had found 613 laws or commandments in the scriptures. Ten of those being the Ten Commandments. So they found 603 more. And they were constantly debating among themselves which 
is the greatest of all of these 613 commandments? There has to be one, right? That's a, that's a valid question, right? You have this many commandments. Surely God has one that should be set above the rest, right? So when the Pharisees hear that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees regarding the resurrection in the passage right before this one, they decide to test him with another question. Right. Well, he silenced the Pharisees. Let's see if we can't trick him again. Let's see if we can't trap him one more time. And this time they use their lawyer to do it. Right. So a myriad of lawyer jokes could be made here by any you know, good pastor or preacher. But the point here is to try to attempt the context of what's happening. Right. So in this context, this lawyer is an expert in both theology and the law of Moses. This is the type of lawyer that he is. Right. And so as a lawyer... He studies the law constantly, and he teaches the law regularly. This is his life. This is his career. These are the things that he focuses on when he's eating dinner, and his mind starts to wander, right? I can attest to this at the fact that sometimes I have a hard time sleeping, and so I will wake up in the middle of the night, and I'll be thinking about the sermon text, and so I'll pull out my iPad, and I'll send myself an email, or I'll type a note because I've had a thought, and I know I'm going to forget it as soon as I fall back asleep. Right. These are the things that are on his mind. He's a lawyer. He thinks about God's word. He thinks about the law. And so because this is his concern, this is his career, this is what he does, he is obviously concerned about the right interpretation of the law. This is what he wants to know. But interestingly, here in this passage, so far, at least in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has refused to answer these questions from the religious leaders in a direct way. Instead, he has always answered their questions with a question of his own. So, for example, again, Matthew 21, 23. Where did you get this authority? Who gave it to you? By what authority do you do these things? Well, where did John's ministry come from? Where did John get it? Right. This is how he, this is how he works. <laughs> but this time, it's, it's different. This time, the question is actually worthy of a direct response. They, he asks a good question. Even if he is trying to... to trick Jesus. Even though his motives are deceitful, the question is a good question, and it's worthy of a response. And in this answer, what Jesus does is he sets forth a grand summary of the entire law of God. And so he answers first by quoting the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, chapter 5, which is the law, right? So he says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. The Shema gets its name from the Hebrew word for here, which is Shema, right? So Shema Israel, right? Yeah, Shema Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The Shema was recited every single day by Jewish families or a Jewish person, both in the morning and in the evening. And it outlines, what the Shema does is that it outlines a holistic lifestyle framed by Torah, framed by the law. So the Shema teaches, if you were to go and continue reading Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, you will see that it teaches Yahweh, Yahweh's people to memorize his law, to recite Torah, to instruct their children in Torah, to write out Torah both on the lintels of their home and bind it upon their wrists and upon, in between their eyes. They are to constantly have Torah in front of them. One commentator writes here, he says this, he says that Jesus' response to the Shema is a manifestly climactic statement because through it, Jesus summons his disciples to love God with their entire being. This is why this commandment is the great and the first of all of the commandments. 
So from a viewpoint of biblical anthropology, from understanding man, understanding what God has, has laid out for us, heart, soul, and mind are not exclusive terms. These are meant to be overlapping categories as we understand the complete person. Because together, all of these demand that our love for God come from our entire being. So Origen actually writes here, he says this, he says, Worthy is the one who exalts in the wisdom of God, having a heart full of the love of God, and a soul completely enlightened by the lamp of knowledge, and a mind filled with the word of God. But loving God is not only the greatest commandment, it is the most important commandment, Jesus says. This is the first commandment, because without this commandment, obedience to any other commandment from God is virtually impossible. And so Jesus answers secondly, and he says this, well, the second is like it, quoting Leviticus 19.18, the law, quoting, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this commandment is a companion commandment to loving God. Loving neighbor is only made possible by loving God first. You cannot love other people unless you love God. This is the point. And plus, the followers of Christ cannot claim to love or serve God if we are also not loving our neighbors in return. John makes this explicitly clear in 1 John chapter 2. He says this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, our Orthodox friends are really helpful here. They write that the second commandment must be understood as it is written in the Greek. So we read here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But in the Greek, more clearly, this reads, you shall love your neighbor as being yourself. And they state that we often misinterpret this passage to mean that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But they say this destroys the force of the commandment. How much we love ourselves is not the standard by which Christ is calling us to love others. Rather, we are called to love our neighbor because they are of the same nature as we ourselves are. Our neighbors have been created in God's image as an icon of God. And they have been created in his likeness as an icon of God, just as we have been. And so notice the connection between this text and the text that Chris preached on last week. Render to God the things that are God's. And love your neighbor as being yourself, created to be an icon of God. And upon these two commandments, Jesus tells us, depend all the law and all the prophets. But there's a hiccup. Because so far we have seen the law, but we have not seen the prophets. So he says, the law and the prophets, but where are the prophets? These two commands, to love God and love neighbor, set the framework for the holistic life as commanded by the Shema, but they are displayed throughout the prophetic tradition. So let me give you a few examples, and then we will look at the next section. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 and 16 through 17, God, God proclaims this. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have had more than enough of burnt offerings and of rams and of the fat of fattened animals, and I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. 
or love God. Furthermore, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. Or again, love your neighbor as yourself. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, Hosea says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus quoted this exact verse to the Pharisees in Matthew 9.13, where we started ordinary time this year. As a command to love others as created in the image of God. In Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, Amos says, I hate and I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Meaning, If you do not love me or your neighbor, then why should I accept your sacrifices and your worship? Finally, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Asked Micah. Well, it's not these things we all just read about in Isaiah and Amos and in uh, Hosea. He goes on, he says, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Again, with what we just read. No. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? No. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? To use the language of Paul in Romans, God forbid. Here's Here's what Micah says. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Or, to use the language in our text today, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands stand together because the first commandment without the second is impossible. And the second commandment cannot be accomplished without the first one. Love is the greatest command, but it is not the only command. Love, rightly ordered, and obedience to the law are bound together. And the law teaches God's people how to love both God and neighbor. This is how Jesus can say in the Sermon on the Mount without contradiction that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And both the law and the prophets bear witness to the testimony, the authority, and the identity of Jesus as the Christ. But then he doesn't stop there. So what about the writings? Right? I've mentioned the writings today. Where do they fit in? For that, we need the rest of our text. This interaction continues. So picking up in verse 41, we see now, so he gives them the command, he gives them this response to their question. And so while they were gathered together, probably debating among themselves, right? Did he, did he answer rightly? Did he not? I don't know. What do you think? Jesus asked them a question, and he says, well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So the writings, we don't use this term in, in, our, in our tradition. Uh, most Christians don't use this term, right? We have Old Testament and New Testament. 
um, we break down the Old Testament differently, right? We have, we have the law, we have history, we have wisdom, we have prophets. This is, this is how we break down uh, our Old Testament. But the writings refer to all of the Old Testament books that are not the law or the prophets. So the works of wisdom and poetry, the works of history for the most part, like Ruth or Chronicles. If you were to grab a hold of a copy of, of the, the scriptures from a Jewish tabernacle or temple, um, it would usually end with Chronicles. They go through all of the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament, and they remind themselves of their history through Chronicles. This is how it works. Uh, but Jesus wastes no time in this passage, calling upon the authority of the writings, the rest of the scriptures at this time, and particularly the Psalms. But interestingly, the writings are alluded to even before Jesus gets to asking this question. So notice in, in verse 41, the, the, where we picked up with the word now, he uses a similar, Matthew uses a similar word here that he used back in verse 34. Matthew records this. He says that the Pharisees were gathered together. Now this might seem to be an incidental detail. But remember, nothing is in Scripture by accident, and Matthew is concerned with fulfillment. He wants to make sure that we understand that all types and patterns have been fulfilled in the person and work and ministry of Christ. And so this phrase, gather together, is an echo of Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. The psalm right after the psalm that we read today, which is from the writings, which reads like this. The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together. They gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ, against his Messiah. And so as they are gathered together, conspiring against Jesus as the Christ, to see if maybe they can trap him in his answer about the greatest commandment, Jesus doesn't let them continue debating. He asks them a question regarding a subject that is also of great debate among them, whose son is the Christ. So for us, reading this passage with over two millennia of Christian history and theology to stand upon, we aren't fully capable of comprehending the weight of this question in the moment. We don't have the mental capacity to get it. Because most of us in the room, I'm not saying this is the case for all of us, but most of us in the room have either been in the faith long enough or we were raised in the faith that for many of us from a very young age have been able to say that Jesus is the Son of God. And once we started to understand what that meant, we were able to at least also express that Jesus is the Son of David. We understood that. But during this era, the question of the Christ was subject for a huge debate all the time. By the time of the incarnation of Christ, not only were there plenty of clues from the established Old Testament canon, but there were also a plethora of intertestamental works that were out there, many of which are in the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon. And all of these point, have identity, point, identity markers that point to who the Lord's Christ would be, whether that be through prophecy or that be through the history of the Jewish people. So before the Incarnation, there had already even been a few individuals that they thought was the Christ, particularly during the period of the Maccabean Revolt. You can read about this in the book of the Maccabees, which is in most Apocryphals. The most common aspect, though, of first century messianic beliefs was a Messiah who would deliver Israel from her enemies after the pattern of David's victories. So, for example, in the deuterocanonical work, the apocryphal work, the wisdom of Sirach, which, for those that have it in their Bibles, is part of the writings. In, Deut in uh, 
Wisdom of Sirach 47.1 states this about David. It says, The Lord took away David's sins, exalted his power forever, and gave him a covenant of kings and a throne of glory in Israel. So the best way that I can think for us to personally try to contextualize this, I was thinking about this all week, and then we had a conversation, I think, last night at the Reformation Feast, a few of us did, and this is when it came to me. The way we can personally contextualize this is that by the time of the ministry of Jesus, this period was about as prevalent with messianic speculations as much as our own time is overflowing with end-time speculations. This is how we can get our minds wrapped around it. And so by asking them this question, they're debating among themselves, can we trap him in how he answered? What Jesus is doing is he he, he returns their focus to the real issue at hand ever since the moment they had demanded proof of his authority in 21-23. And that was their issue with his identity. Who are you? So they weren't. The, the concern is not who would be married to whom in the resurrection, like the Sadducees bring up as, a, as an example. Or not who do we pay taxes to, Jesus, because we kind of want to revolt against Rome, so who do we pay taxes to? But rather, the concern, the focus, is his identity and his authority to do the works that he has been doing and to proclaim the things that he has been proclaiming. And so by asking them this Christological question, Jesus was answering their question. By what authority, Jesus, are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to come in here and to overturn our money changers and to tell us that we have made the temple a den of thieves? Who gave you this authority? Who gave you the authority to heal men on the Sabbath and to raise the dead? Who gave you this authority to feed thousands upon thousands with leftovers? Who gave you this authority? Well, whose son is the Christ. This was part of our discussion this morning as we were looking at Isaiah 45 in Sunday school. Chrysostom writes here, he says this. He says, keep in mind, keep in mind how many miracles have preceded this interaction. How many signs, how many questions, how many displays of Jesus' union with the Father. And after so many previous events, he is now quietly leading them to the point that they have to confess that he is God. This is why he introduces David at this moment into the discussion, so that his true identity and his divinity might be clearly recognized. So in this case, how can David's son simultaneously be his Lord? The question is effective for them because they recognize and they accept his premise. David wrote this psalm. This is Psalm 110. The most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament. And so David wrote this psalm as God's Spirit led him. And further, Psalm 10 has always been under 110, excuse me, 110 has been understood to be messianic. But pay attention to what Jesus is not doing in this question. He's not denying that the Messiah is David's son. Rather, what he is saying is that the Messiah, as well as being David's son, is more than David's son. He is David's Lord. And so by quoting this psalm, Jesus now combines the authority of all of Scripture, the law, the prophets, and the writings, to establish his identity to them and his authority for them, leaving them with no confusion about what he is telling them. This is why, as this passage ends, they are not able to answer him a word. Or, nor do they dare to ask him any more questions. They knew exactly what he was proclaiming about himself. 
Augustine writes here, he, said, he asked this question. He says, so how can David's, how could Christ be David's son and also his Lord? He says, this is how. He is David's Lord always, but he is David's son in time. He is David's Lord because he is born of the substance of the Father, but he is David's son because he is born of the Virgin Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Augustine says, therefore, let us hold fast to both because one of them will be our eternal habitation and the other is our deliverance from exile. David's son is David's Lord because he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so this text is important for us, just as important for us as it was for the Pharisees because here, just as he does twice in Luke 24, Jesus commands us to read all of the old covenant scriptures Christologically. Read them with me in mind, because I am there. And this quote from Augustine helps us as we attempt to understand the identity of Christ and our own identity in Christ. So what we can take from this today is comfort in the established word and the established entire word of God, the law, the prophets, and the writings, as they each point us to who is our Lord, the one who is our eternal habitation, and the one who is our deliverance from exile by his finished work, by his resurrection, and by the power of his Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.